Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Athletic. If you break the league attendance record on the first day of the season, you pack out the Emirates with over 54,000 fans. You want to give them a result. When Arsenal sold those tickets, they were banking on a win. And who would blame them? Liverpool's position in the league last season? 24 points behind the Gunners. The last time Arsenal lost the opening game of a season? 2013, incidentally, against Liverpool at the Emirates. And Liverpool's last away win? January 2020. But Liverpool tore that script up and beat Arsenal 1-0. So Arsenal have lost the first game of the season and they're already out of the Champions League. And we're only two days into October. So what's going wrong at Arsenal? I'm Sophie Penny and this is Full Time Europe. I'm with The Athletic's tactics man, Michael Cox, at Zonal underscore marking on Twitter, and our Arsenal writer, Art de Rocher, at Art de Rocher on Twitter. Hello to you both, and hello to our listeners. New season, new show. Make sure you leave us a rating and a review, and don't forget to follow and subscribe. So you were both at the Emirates. I hope after that opening weekend, you're not feeling as tired as Lucia Garcia. Do you all see that clip? I thought that was hilarious. Um, doing the rounds of her swearing live on BBC. So, Michael, obviously we're talking today about Arsenal's shock loss in front of that record crowd. I feel like there's been two camps of people. One saying that Chelsea also lost to Liverpool on the opening day of the season last year and they still won the league. And so it's all right for Arsenal and they're going to be fine. And the other side is saying, as you point out in your full-time column on The Athletic, that in a 22-game season, champions can't afford to be beaten that often. So do you think this is going to have a big impact on the title race? Yeah, I mean, it's true that Chelsea lost their first game of last season and won the title, but they only lost once again in the whole of the campaign. So if Arsenal were prepared to go 21 games with only one defeat, then sure, they'll potentially be able to match what Chelsea did last season. But it's a tall order. This wasn't a difficult fixture on paper. It was at home to a side who came sixth in the league last year. I think maybe Liverpool will be slightly better, but there's no suggestion they're suddenly going to be title contenders. So it was three drop points for Arsenal. And they're away at Manchester United next weekend. So, I mean, it's not inconceivable they could lose that game. They lost both games to Manchester United last season. And then potentially they're they're going to be two defeats, uh, two games, two defeats uh, already. So I think it's a really big blow to Arsenal. And of course, you know you can't really uncouple it from the fact that they went out of the Champions League early. So they've lost twice already in in all competitions this season. So yeah, I mean I I don't think Arsenal played disastrously. I don't think Liverpool completely did a number on them. But in terms of the the result itself, I think it's a, a really big blow. 
Art, obviously that Champions League loss that Michael mentioned there, I think going into the opening weekend of the WSL, everyone was saying, oh, this will do Arsenal good. They'll be able to focus on the league. But actually it means that when they lose a league game, it it makes it harder to swallow, doesn't it? Yeah, there's obviously more pressure now on what happens in the WSL. And also, it's maybe not a football point, but those Champions League games last season in particular, I feel were massive in terms of just them as a brand because they were able to sell out the stadium for the semi-final against Wolfsburg. I think that was a really big driver in them also being able to have so many seats filled, even though (laughs) Michael saw a few empty ones um, yesterday. (laughs) Um, So I think that's a massive side of it. But then to couple it with the Champions League exit, I just think, yeah, you're almost playing catch-up not almost, you are pay, playing catch-up for the rest of the season now already because you have dropped points so early on and it's just a really tough situation to be in because I think we'll probably go into it, but I mentioned that they obviously aren't with their best players at the minute. They haven't really formed proper relationships yet. So it wasn't going to be a walkover, but the fact that they weren't able to really play proper football I think that'd be the most disappointing thing I mean Michael let's talk about that goal because as Art's saying you know that wasn't the level of defending that Arsenal would expect from from themselves from the standards they set so that goal Mary Taylor was basically unmarked in the box wasn't she where where was Arsenal's defense how did that even happen well I think it starts really from where they lost the ball I mean the the player who who got caught out in possession was Steph Catley the left-sided centre-back and when that happens obviously the the other two defenders have to push across and, and shut down the cutback. I actually thought it was quite a nicely worked goal from Liverpool. Pressed very well, got players around the ball, uh, played a good forward pass into the channel and then a cutback and a finish. I mean the player who finished it was unmarked but I, I thought really the the problem stemmed from earlier. Arsenal were just a bit tentative in possession. I thought at times Liverpool pressed very well throughout the game. I was impressed that even deep into stoppage time, Arsenal had a throw by their own corner flag and Liverpool were putting players around around their opponents, trying to box them into the corner. Um, so there was, I think, a level of aggression and uh, a sense of being proactive that, that meant that Liverpool were trying to force the mistakes and just the way that they worked the opening uh, with, with some good interplay, numbers down the flanks was something Arsenal weren't really doing themselves. I mean, Arsenal had lots of space out wide, but it tended to be just, you know, push the ball out to the wing back and hope for a good cross. And more often than not, it wasn't a good cross. Let's talk about those those crosses, Art. 39 of them. It felt like Liverpool's plan was to just dominate the centre of the field and then force Arsenal out wide. But it, it just wasn't working for them, those crosses, was it? No, and you're almost going to your last resort as your first plan of attack. I felt Mm. in the early stages of the game, they were quite promising because they were able to find some spaces in between, which they did well last season when they had a back three. But as the game went on, it just seemed, yeah, predictable. And going forward, I think you really have to work to get those chances to come from the centre of the pitch. I only remember one pass going through the middle of the Liverpool backline, and it was Leah Walty in the second half for, I believe it was Lacasse, but 
she couldn't even reach the ball. So it was just a really, I guess, almost monotone uh, performance in a way from Arsenal, which you don't really expect from them. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I think it was almost a little bit one-dimensional in terms of just having one player out there and and getting crosses in. I think if you're being afforded that much space out wide, you know, Arsenal have got intelligent players who can drift wide uh, and create overloads and kind of do what Liverpool did, which was work the ball into cutback positions. And cutbacks tend to be more effective because you've got the defenders having to run towards their own goal and then suddenly turn and... Uh, you know, intercept or, or get a block in. So, yeah, it just felt, it, it did feel slightly predictable. And I do think Arsenal have got the players to work the wide area as well. You know, uh, Caitlin Ford should be able to do that. Kate McCabe, you know, is a very good crosser, but I think getting her into more advanced positions to cross would have been effective. The other thing is Arsenal had 19 corners. It was just... Second highest in WSL history, is that right? I've read in your article, Michael, of corners. Yeah, thanks. Thank you to Opta for responding to my email very quickly. Uh, the second highest behind Arsenal's game at Yeovil, um, I think uh, 2017, I think that was. And I mean, Yeovil that season got two draws and zero wins. So they just, I mean, completely couldn't compete. So teams were quite regularly battering them. So for Arsenal to get the second highest number of corners behind that game um, really shows how dominant they were. But I can't really remember any corners leading to anything really also Arsenal aren't short of aerial threats that's what I find so odd about this is they had so many corners they had so many crosses they had Alessia Russo in the box you know they brought on Amanda Illichstadt who was second in the World Cup for for the golden boot race they brought on Blackstinius who's very tall so the other question is you know why weren't those aerial threats working in the box did you have any thoughts about that Art? I think most of them were just put on top of the goalkeeper there wasn't really much variation in terms of delivery. So for Liverpool, it probably would have just been, okay, let's just keep on doing what we've been doing for <laughs> the whole game, really. And they, they were able to deal with everything quite comfortably. Whenever there was a spillage in the box, there wasn't really an Arsenal player in a position to just poke it in because they were all loaded on the on the goal line, really. So when you're, I guess, banking on one of those, uh, I guess, players on the the near post to flick one in and they don't, then you're just almost gambling, really. So I think maybe a bit of variation could have helped Arsenal out with those corners. But from a Liverpool standpoint, I think they had a clear plan and they just saw it out. Do you think Arsenal should have played someone like Freedom Mornham in a more central area rather than on the on the right? Do you think that would have helped them break down this this central block from Liverpool. I just thinking if you're Jonas Edeval on the sidelines, you've got to try and do something about that that central block. What what do you think they should have done? Last season, so when he used the back three, rather than it being okay, a three and then wing backs and just one striker, he had two number tens in there. One of them was Victoria Pulova. And she's a very Arsenal type player in that very technically gifted, can see a pass, can receive really comfortably in tight spaces. So I was surprised at how long it took for her to actually come onto the pitch. I'm not sure what Michael thinks about that, but a player like her, I think Marnham's more someone who drives with the ball. I don't think she would have been much different if she was used a bit more, I guess, centrally, as he said. Um, So I think the personnel maybe could have been a bit different um, or the approach at least 
could have been a bit different a bit earlier on. Yeah, I agree with you. I was a little bit surprised at one, how long it took to make the subs. I mean, Arsenal went 1-0 behind on 48 minutes and they didn't make any subs until 63 minutes. So that's 15 minutes where I don't think they did much. And they were pretty much just straight swaps. I mean, maybe Pilova for, for Lacasse was was a you know an obviously different type of player. But in general, I mean, it took until 73 minutes to bring on Stina Blackstenius. I don't know whether there's an issue with Russo in terms of not wanting to play her for 90 minutes. But I thought going with two strikers seemed quite an obvious option when you're just crossing the ball relentlessly. So yeah, I thought Arsenal could have been braver. I thought, you know, they end up with Jen Beattie going up front. I Personally... She would have been the one I would have taken off first and foremost. Just play two centre backs, even if one of them is is Catley, not a natural centre back by any means. But just take off a third centre back and bring on an extra attacking player. I thought would have been the the obvious move. And, and Arsenal have got, I mean, no shortage of attacking players to bring on Hertig, Pelova, Blackstenius, and Cooney Cross, and, and they also had Catherine Cool on the bench who can do a job. I mean, they they had so many options against the Liverpool side, who only actually named five subs. Uh, one of them was a goalkeeper. So they just couldn't change the game to the extent that Arsenal could on paper. But I, I didn't think Arsenal really increased the attacking threat. I thought it was surprisingly limp from them in the second half. There were no real, you know, periods of pressure where you just think a goal's inevitable here. It was, like I say, quite stop-start. And uh, I think Liverpool basically deserved their clean sheet. I don't think they were ever under that much pressure, despite the fact they conceded 19 corners, which is remarkable, really. To be fair, looking at that, I don't think I would have made two different changes in regards to personnel. I think it's more just in terms of the structure and shape, as as Michael said. I think Black Stenius, when she came on, she had an immediate impact. Even though she didn't score, she was just a bit more of a threat in behind, I felt. And you're, then you're turning Liverpool's defence and actually making them think about what they have to do rather than keeping them in the same kind of motion of, okay, drop back, look wide for the cross, head it out, defend the box. So I think probably would have made the changes a bit earlier and slightly changed the approach because in terms of the names, I think they're fine. Lena Hurtig actually did quite well when she came on. So yeah, I don't think there was much wrong with, I guess, the the personnel. Just, yeah, a little bit of a change of tack. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to Full Time Europe with Sophie Penny. I've seen a lot of WSL predictions before this weekend saying that they thought that Arsenal would win the league given the quality of the signings that that they've got. Michael, is there a way you think that Arsenal can use the signings better? Obviously, they're just, you know, it's the start of the season. But the calibre of people who they've got in, Alessia Russo, Amanda Illestad, Kyle Cooney-Cross, Chloe Lacasse, Laia Kadina, you know, those are star signings. So how do you think Arsenal can make better use of them? Well, I think the first thing to say is that they've actually now got too many players. I mean, because they they built a squad expecting to have six Champions League games before Christmas and hopefully for them seven after Christmas. And now they've got, what, 22, 24 
serious players who I think would expect to be in the first team. I mean, the squad yesterday didn't include Leah Williamson, uh, Beth Mead, Vivian Miedemar, uh, Laura Winreuther, Gio, you know, an extra striker. It's such a big squad. And I don't think it's just a kind of tactical issue in terms of what players you get on the pitch and, and what combinations you have. I think there's going to be an issue in terms of keeping all those players happy. I also think there's an issue that if you don't have the Champions League matches, you end up feeling the need to give minutes to lots of players and then the players don't necessarily develop relationships on the pitch. Okay, you've got the Conti Cup to use as a bit of a training session, if you like, even though even though Arsenal won it last year and will want to win it again. But I just think the squad's really big and I think that'll be really difficult for Jonas Adevar now. I mean, you look up front, Arsenal played with one striker yesterday. I mean, how you fit in Rousseau and Black Stennis and Miedemar, they're clearly not all going to start together. You'd think probably you have to start two of them because of the quality of player, but then you're, you're a player down in midfield, so you're going to have to disappoint someone else. So I think it's going to be a struggle for Arsenal. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of players uh, leaving in January because I think there's a lot of real quality there that just aren't going to get the playing time they want. I think it's difficult as well for the players who are coming back, isn't it? Beth Mead seems to be pretty close. Obviously, Leah Williamson will, will come later. But are they guaranteed playing time, even though they were you know, stalwarts of, of the Arsenal side before? I think that could also have a knock-on effect for, for England, couldn't it, if they're having to fight for their places? Do you think that players like, like Beth Mead are guaranteed a, a spot when they come back in? Or do you think actually it's going to be really tricky for, for them getting that fitness back because they might not be given quite as much time back on the pitch. I think because of her status, Mead probably is guaranteed a starting spot. I know Jonas Eideville really likes her, so I think he'll go out of his way to accommodate her. But I mean, for players like Pelova, whenever she comes on, I think she's really, really useful in central midfield or on the right. Lena Hertig, I, I just can't see her breaking into the first team. She'll probably have to be happy with a substitutes role. And there's lots of young players who will want football to develop. Catherine Cool, I think, is a, a really good young player who, you know, maybe this season or next season would, would hope to really make a mark. Uh, Cooney Cross, I think, obviously has just come in. But another one who I think will have moved hoping to play regularly this season. There's just so many really good players there. So, yeah, it's it's... It's going to be tough. Um, and in defence as well. The same situation with with Leo Williamson still not in the team. I mean, there's three... Arsenal started three good centre-backs at the weekend. And that didn't include Illestead. It didn't include uh, Lycodina. So there's just players all over the place, really. Yeah, leave out your World Cup winner. <laughs> it was something Jonas Edova actually mentioned in his pre-match uh, press conference because he said before he'd never really had, I guess a selection headache in his last or well, first two seasons, I should say. Yeah, the opposite at the uh, end of last season, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. So um, it is a very, I guess, new sort of challenge and magnifies it a bit more. But also when you look at the situation they're in now, say if they went to Manchester United and lost and you've dropped six points already, the third Champions League spot is not really the one anyone wants. And it's the one you're mm. going to be have to be fighting for the most. And then they just get put in the same situation they were in this summer. So it is just a really, really difficult turn of events um, this past few weeks. And it's one that 
somehow there's gonna they're gonna have to find a solution for. So Arsenal have Man United next, as you both mentioned. How do they approach that one now tactically, Michael? First, what are your thoughts on that? I think they've got quite a set way of playing, and I don't think they'll significantly change things. In terms of the formation, I wouldn't be surprised maybe if they play a different way against the Manchester United side with a lot of speed. Maybe Jem Beattie wouldn't start that game. Could be another one of the, the centre-backs who's just come in or maybe a switch to four at the back. There's just a kind of a sluggishness with Arsenal's passing that I think would be a little bit of a concern. So yeah, whether that's resolved by selection uh, changes, I don't know. It's To me, if I was the only side of it, I'd almost be concerned about the the general attitude and the general intensity of performance um, as much as the the identity of the players on the pitch. I think that was a criticism that was levelled at, at Man United as well this weekend against Aston Villa. And they did produce that 2-1 win, but the passing was kind of lacking lacking the tempo. So it'll be interesting to see what gets them into gear or wh- which team kind of brings the impetus there. Art, do you think that Arsenal have a genuine chance of of winning this Man United match or do you think it's going to be too tough for them given the results that they've had recently? No, I think they can go and win. It's just about turning up but then also trying to find solutions rather than shift the blame to people. And last year, I think, is just um, proof that him and his staff are able to find solutions when they need to. It's just about doing that quickly now. Mm, they need to step up and they need to step up quick, essentially. And one of the key threats that Arsenal will have to deal with with Manchester United will be Lucia Garcia, who got the player of the match at the weekend. She scored for United and she also scored for Spain last week against Switzerland in the Nations League. The Spanish players weren't even going to play that match as part of a boycott, but the coach held a press conference calling them up to the squad. And after that, If they didn't play, they would have faced big consequences legally. So the games went ahead. With the former coach, Jorge Vilda, and the president, Luis Rubiales, now out of the picture, some players that were part of the pre-World Cup boycott, like Lucia Garcia, are back now. But others, like Mapi Leon and Patri Guijaro, still aren't playing for Spain as more changes are being made. More on Spain next. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to Full Time Europe from The Athletic. It's been 43 days since Spain won the World Cup and 43 days since the president of the Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, kissed Jenny Hermoso without her consent in the celebrations. The Athletics Dermot Corrigan is with us from Madrid at Dermot M. Corrigan on Twitter. Dermot, this story has been crazy. At one point, you were camped out where Rubiales's mother was on hunger strike. It just feels like it's done everything, this story. Now Rubiales has resigned. Vilda has been sacked. But there's a lot more changes that still need to be made. So can you tell us 
a bit about what's been happening since that resignation and also what more the players want to be changed. It has been a a real surreal element to, to this whole story, as you say, there even to the to the point of Rubiales mother going on hunger strike in a in a church down in, in the south of Spain. And to an extent Rubiales is has resigned. He's you know he's in court now there's a criminal proceedings that are moving forward against him for what he did. But for a lot of the players maybe and just for looking to the future, the important thing isn't just that Rubiales is gone, it's that there were a lot of things that they weren't happy with at the Federation going back years, the support that they got, the resources that were put into to women's football, how the men seemed to be much better treated than the women's team were. All, all of that happened before Rubiales kissed Jenny Hermoso at the World Cup and all of that still had to be fixed even though Rubiales was gone. So that's what the players have been have been working at to try and and ensure that the conditions that they have to, to play under, that we've heard all kinds of horrible stories, really. Laia on our side has done some really good reporting on it. I spoke to some former coaches and players at the Federation as well, just about how how for years they, they were badly treated. And now the hope is that the players ha- can use the the kind of good position that they have at the minute, or even the spotlight that's been shone on the Federation because of what happened at the World Cup, so that for them this month, next month, next year, in, into the future, that, that women's football would just be, be better treated in Spain and there'd be more equality between the men and the women's team. You say you were speaking to some people about how badly they were treated. What kind of stories were you, were you hearing? Just that the women's voices weren't really listened to within the, the Federation. Preparation for games was really bad. Uh, Alexi Puteas was telling a story recently about having to you know, get planes at 3 a.m. in the morning, arriving at places without being able to train. The facilities weren't right. The kit wasn't right. Basic stuff that while the men's team were looked after with, you know, there was no expense spared really for, for the men's team in terms of hotels, training ground, kit, all these type of things. The women's team were didn't have that. And anybody who who spoke up about it, who wanted to, to have to bring change in the federation or who said like you know we need we need better treatment weren't listened to or often had ended up leaving the federation that's why you know those 15 players didn't go to the world cup because the the problems that they raised before it they felt they weren't listened to at all and yeah it was a, a structural problem within the federation that that needed to be fixed and still needs to be fixed so in terms of the structure and other people who are potentially being sacked in the Federation or changes that are being made, who has been targeted and, and what kind of changes are they trying to do there? After Ruby Alice was gone, Vilda, it was obvious that Vilda just couldn't continue. He was so closely associated with Ruby Alice and he had such a bad relationship with, with most of the players that, that he had to go. Monse Tomi, who took over, was was Vilda's assistant, and she wasn't very popular w- with the players. And you know, when she made the call for the last squad, a lot of the players didn't expect to be called up, didn't know they were going to be called up. They felt that she, in her press conference as well, she had misrepresented them. So there was a lot of a lot of anger there. But instead of maybe most of the players, instead of saying just turning down that that call, most of them decided we're going to go to accept the call, go there and and make use of it, sit down and see how we can use this opportunity, I guess, the spotlight that's been shone on women's football at the minute in order to to turn things around. So there was, again, not good preparation for, for the Sweden game or the Switzerland game you know, last week. They were up until like 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. Talks mediated by the Spanish top civil servant who, who works with the, the Central Sports Council in Spain. But they achieved real... It surprised me and it's, you know, to their great credit that, that they... They made a stand and forced three changes. Like Andrea Camps, who was the all-powerful uh, secretary at the Federation, he's gone. Head of Integrity, who had kind of 
put together this report saying that Rubiales had done nothing wrong, you know, put pressure on Jenny Hermoso at, at the World Cup. He's gone, gone as well. The, the head of communications at the Federation has gone over the weekend who would have been involved in putting out statements on Hermoso's behalf, which, you know, she says she, she didn't say. So the players have, you know, without much support from the men's side, without that much support even from the media or from general football with, within Spain, they, you know, stood up for themselves. And once they told me they weren't so happy with her, they kind of decided, I think, to, to work with her, especially for, for those two games. You know, they, they realised that they couldn't just bring in a new coach straight away. I think they've reached uh, a kind of a working relationship. I wouldn't say they're all getting on great, but they were able to, to win the two games, to enjoy, you know, winning games together, enjoy it with the fans as well. You know, bringing back a feeling that, you know, just enjoying playing football, playing for Spain, getting on with what they, they love to do. Whether Tommy stays in the the job long term, we're going to have to see Like, there's still a lot more change to come. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask, because it was great to see them produce those victories. But, you know, she lied in the press conference, didn't she? She said that the players had been told they were going to be called up and then they weren't. So I wonder, do you think she'll stay? I mean, do you think the players want her to stay? Because she's also Vilda's assistant as well, isn't she? So is she the kind of calibre of coach that a World Cup winning team deserves? I don't think so. And I, I don't think that... that- all of the players think so as well, or a lot of the players don't think so as well. It's a it's a, a moment of big change in the federation. Like the, it's not that a new president has come in yet. There's going to be elections. It's still kind of up in the air, and it's very political. And there's kind of meetings going on in smoky, smoke filled rooms behind the scenes to try to the people who have a lot of power at the federation try and keep that power. The government and others to try and make changes to 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 bring in maybe a whole new president who come in and root and branch reform and clean clean the place out and put in a new, the structures we were talking about, a new regime, which would be more favourable to, to women's football. If that happens, I don't think Tommy is going to be the, the coach in, in a year's time or, or when the new president comes in, whether it's worth having another row, putting in a new coach again while there's an interim president. You, you know, it, that's even more turmoil and, and maybe it's better or maybe the players have decided it's better to, to work with what we have. But yeah, I think if Spain do make the Olympics next year, which is looking quite likely because of, of how well they played, I think it would be unlikely that Mansetomi would be the coach at that stage. My thanks to Dermot Corrigan, Michael Cox and Art de Rocher. For more on everything we've been chatting about in today's podcast, head to The Athletic. You can sign up today for a special limited time offer of just £1 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com slash footballpod. And for the latest from America, make sure you listen to Full Time with Meg Linehan. It's going down to the wire in the NWSL. There's two games left and only San Diego Wave have guaranteed a playoff spot. Alex Morgan ended her goal drought for them at the weekend. So who will get the last five spots? Will it be Megan Rapino and O.L. Reign to go out on a high before she retires? We shall see. For the latest on that and more, make sure you subscribe to the Full Time newsletter delivered straight to your inbox on Monday. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Pennon. To listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your podcasts. The Athletic.